this period of time in between Yom HaShoah and Yom HaZikaron, in, in between Holocaust Memorial and at least for us here in Israel, but I think also for you overseas, Israel Memorial Day, there are sort of bookmarks to a, a, a larger question. It's kind of an elephant in the room. You know, on the one hand, the Shoah, the Holocaust, sort of prevents, presents this question on a much broader scale. It's almost, it's impossible to get your head around it, right? It's, it's just, I mean, one and a half million children. You know, we took a writer to Yad Vashem. I take them every year. And Yamashua, we had a survivor come to speak the afternoon before. It's getting more difficult for survivors to come, to be. I think every opportunity you have to speak with such people is a mitzvah. And the next morning, you know, after uh, uh, a class that I gave, actually partly this class in uh, the, the main square, the Rova Square, so that we can experience the siren that goes off for Holocaust Memorial Day together with everybody outside. And we went to Yad Vashem. I, I can't think really of many more appropriate places to be on Yom Hashem if you're in Israel. And I took them to the Children's Memorial before giving them free reign in the museum. And it's, you know, they try. It's, it's for anybody who's never been to Yad Vashem, which I can't imagine there's anybody who hasn't been to Yad Vashem, but they, they struggle exactly with this question. On the one hand, the broad scope. And on the other hand, how do you make it personal enough that you can at least begin to struggle with the question? When you walk into the Yad Vashem Memorial, the first piece is basically photographs, actually photographed by Roman Vishniak in 1938-39, literally months before the Holocaust, um, of actual children who we know were murdered by the Nazis. And you just look at their faces. You stand there in this eerie darkness with this, I didn't even know how to describe the, the energy of that place. Um, and just look at these faces and try to imagine that the, the, the tragedy, you know, when you walk into this memorial was funded by a, a couple who had lost their son, Uziel. And after the Holocaust, I guess some time after the Holocaust, when the new museum was being built, uh, it occurred to them that, I mean, I'm sure it didn't occur to them, but this was something they struggled with. They had no photos of him. You know, the Nazis didn't let you keep your photos. And they ended up going through Auschwitz and putting aside how you live with seeing your two and a half year old taken off in such a horrible fashion. Um, but when the war was over and the dust settled and they tried to rebuild their lives, they realized they have no photographs of him. And the mother started to realize she started to forget what his face looked like, which, which is terrifying. So they built this memorial and when you walk into the memorial, they have a sculpted visage of the face of this two and a half year old, three year old Uziel, this boy. He looks like a cherub. I mean, it's just such a beautiful face. And you just can't imagine why one of the mightiest empires in the face of the earth felt that this little boy was a threat to them, right? We were um, one year in Poland, our, um, our guide, you know, we go with the right to every year to Poland. Um, and as an aside, by the way, if anybody here has never been, it's, it's an extremely powerful experience, very worthwhile. And if anybody ever wants to join us, it's an easy thing to arrange. But there was a, um, there's a, a particular site right outside, of, right outside of Tarnoff, which I personally have a relationship with because my, my great grandfather's family came, they all came from Tarnoff. I had a, a great, great grandfather who was wise enough to realize they had to get out and left before all of the mayhem, which is why I'm still here. 
but you know, you stand in that square in Tarnov and you read the story of what happened during the days when they were put in the ghetto and then eventually deported. And you just realize you had cousins sitting in that square. I took uh, Yair, our youngest son. He was three weeks before he went into the Israeli army and he came with me to Poland. I can't even begin to describe what a powerful experience that was. And when you, I don't know, it's literally a walk. I mean, we took the bus, but it's a five minute bus ride. There's a forest, right? Bateska Gora. And you go to this forest and, and as soon as you walk down this trail in the forest, you just know that you're in a very dark place. And they took 750, 800 children, they murdered them and they threw them in pits. And they found a Pole who, was, uh, who, who, who had been a teenager and he came out, you know, they heard all the ruckus and they heard the shooting and they, and they just came to watch to see what was going on. And while he was watching this, and the Nazis didn't care that there was a Pole watching. Like you would think, didn't bother them. Nobody bothered him, nobody asked him anything. He didn't do anything. And a dump truck pulled up. And it pulled up, it reversed up to the pits and the back of the dump truck came up and it literally poured babies into this pit. And I, I remember standing there listening to this and I couldn't get the image out of my head. It's, it's too much. You know, Elie Wiesel in the book Night has a vignette that he shares. One morning they forced them to stand during roll call. Thousands of prisoners standing in the central square, one of the crossroads of the different parts of Auschwitz, Birkenau, and, and there was a gallows set up and there were three nooses hanging in the wind and they're all forced to watch. And the capos yell, bury your heads. They have to take off their caps. And they march up two men and the little boy, the sad-eyed angel. And they stand them under the gallows and they put the nooses around their heads. Long live liberty, cries one of the men. But the little boy, the sad-eyed angel is quiet. I mean, what was their crime? They stole a piece of bread. They didn't look at an execution when they were supposed to. They didn't run fast, who knows? And then that horrible sound, the normal Capo, who had been, who was responsible for the executions regularly, refused to do it. To hang a child in front of thousands of prisoners is not an easy thing to do. So an Obersturmfuhr had to take his place. And that horrible sound, and three necks tightening against three nooses. And then they were forced to march past these three bodies. And two men are dead. And the boy, this little 10-year-old boy, whose body was too frail, too light to snap his neck, was dying the slow, horrible death of asphyxiation. And when he's standing in the roll call, watching the execution, he hears a voice from someone a few people away, muttering under his breath, where is God? Where is God? And as they march by the gallows, and they're all for forced to turn their heads that they should see the consequence of thinking of disobeying the Nazi Superman. He hears that voice again, where is God? Where is God now? And Elie Wiesel writes from deep inside himself, a voice responds saying, God is here on these gallows. Now I've often wondered what Elie Wiesel meant or maybe more appropriately what he intended us to think. 
Does that mean that if a 10-year-old boy can be forced to suffer that way, then God is dead? Maybe you'd be better off without a God than to believe there's a God who could allow such a thing to happen. Or did he mean, or did he want us to at least consider that even here on these gallows, that Hashem is with us. You know, we have a, um, a verse that says, Hashem is always with us in our suffering. There's an interesting um, note. When you visit someone at a shiva, so the Ashkenaz tradition is that you say to a person, as you're about to depart, let the Hashem is the source of all reality. It's an interesting discussion what the word makom means. Hashem should comfort you amongst the mourners of Zion. Now the word etchem is plural. It, it literally means Hashem should comfort all of you. So what do you do when you go to a shiva and there's one person sitting shiva? Right? Like, you know, somebody is, 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 has lost his father. He's an only child. And he's the only one sitting shiva. So Rav Yosef once said, you still say it in the plural form because a Jew, even in his suffering, is never alone. Hashem is with us. It's a nice idea. How do you do that? How do you, how do you look at this, this, this huge question mark? It's not just an elephant in the room. It's, it's a herd of elephants. And then you go from that question and you get to Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day. Memorial Day is arguably the most powerful day of the year. It's certainly in Israel, at least for me, the only other day that rivals Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day, is Yom Kippur. And they're very different. Yom HaZikaron, we don't stay in the Beit Midrash. We don't sit and study in the study hall. We take all of Araita and we go to Har Herzl, which is Israel's Arlington National Cemetery. Um, thousands of Israeli soldiers uh, are, are, who gave up everything that we could have a state are buried there. Uh, there are memorials for anyone and everyone who had anything to do with the birth of the state of Israel, the fact that we have a state of Israel, willing to give up everything to be part of the state of Israel. There's a memorial for those who fought for Israel in Europe before there was a state and have no known, but we don't know where they're buried. It's a powerful memorial. There's a memorial for the Ethiopian Jews who died on the journey 10 to 10 days to two weeks through the Sudan in horrendous conditions. There's a memorial for all the victors, victims of terror. And there are ceremonies on Yom HaZikron for each of these groups. And of course, Herr Herzl is much more personal. You know, I don't know anybody in Israel who doesn't know somebody. Personally, I, I take a right and I, I, I can't. It's very hard for me to do this, you know, sort of often. But on Yom HaZikron, I kind of like, you know, open up the box. And I share with them some of the stories of people I was close with, particularly Danny Majitz, who was a close friend. And he is 20 years old forever. Now, Danny was the tzaddik of our year. He, this is not sort of, you know, just memorializing and glorifying. He really was. He's just, the stories about him, we're not going to really get into them, but you just have to scratch your head. Like, what is Hashem thinking? Why, why does this family deserve to suffer? And it's, it's a question which, which I mean, it, 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 it's deafening this question. So how do you deal with this question? How do you deal with the righteous who suffer? How do you deal with a God who allows suffering to take place? We've been struggling with this as long as there's been a Jewish people. So I want to suggest an idea, okay? 
if you could ask um, a great rabbi in Jewish history, you know what, I'm going to open up the chat so you can give me your answers on the, let me see, okay? Um, yes, this is being recorded, by the way. Um, if you could ask a great rabbi in Jewish history, like the greatest rabbi, this question, why do the righteous suffer? How do we understand God in the Holocaust? You know, Elie Wiesel once said, a Jew can affirm God. After the Holocaust, a Jew can affirm God or he can deny God, but he can no longer ignore God. You can't ignore this question. In fact, I'm going to ask you, who do you think, if you could go back in time and ask a great rabbi for his thoughts on this topic, right? Someone from the past, greatest rabbi in Jewish history, who would that be? Put your answers in the chat. While you're doing that, I'll tell you something interesting. When I got to Israel, I came to Israel in 1981 out of high school. I thought I was coming here for a year. I was all set to Columbia and so on and so forth. Fell in love with the country, fell in love with learning, and the rest is history. And I remember visiting Yad Vashem. I visited Yad Vashem the, the day before I went into the army. I just couldn't sit and study. I knew I was going to the army tomorrow. So I went to the hotel to, to Davin to pray in the morning. And then I went to Yad Vashem. My going to the army was part of my response to the Holocaust. I feel like I... I took six million with me in my backpack. And I remember when you used to go to Vashem back there, there was one group in Israel that was conspicuously absent. You never saw them. And that was the, you want to call them the black hat community, the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox. These labels are problematic, but for the purpose of this discussion, you never saw them there. If you go to Yad Vashem today, particularly on a Friday or a Sunday morning, you'll see it's full of Haredi. You'll see boys who are on their way to yeshiva or back from yeshiva, families, they come there to see. Now, I have a theory about this, and I don't know if I'm right. I think that in 1981, the, 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 the leaders of that community, the rabbis, they were the survivors. They were the people who saw this. They were the people who, who got out just in time but lost their families. This question was too big for them. I think they were afraid if they opened up that box, it'd be a hole they'd fall into they'd never get out of. Couldn't imagine how you could deal with this question. You know, it's like when a person is in Shiva, you don't deal with this then. You got you to gotta, you gotta wait a little until you're ready to think about it. Today, the generation of Torah scholars who lead the yeshivot are not the survivors anymore. You know, they're, they're the children and even grandchildren of survivors. So they're open to dealing with this question. And I think they, they, they send people or they're open to it. So something's changing. How do we deal with this question? So somebody wrote the Rambam. Well, the Rambam certainly had his share of suffering. He actually had a brother on whom he was completely dependent who uh, was lost with his entire fortune at sea. It became a very difficult challenge for him. Somebody wrote Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was, was the great rabbi who, who literally smiled, perhaps even laughed while he was being tortured to death. Somehow, if we're to accept this as literal, able to recognize that this world is not reality. So yeah, okay. But I would go with the person who said Moshe Rabbein. We don't think of Moshe as a rabbi, but he was Moshe Rabbeinu. He was our rabbi. You know, you go into sometimes an office, maybe a doctor's office, and they have what they call the God wall. You know, I got my BA from Harvard and my MD from Princeton. You know, I went to Harvard Medical, like whatever it is. Moshe had the ultimate God wall. His rabbinical ordination was from God, right? So if there's anybody who would understand how to deal with these God, God and these questions, then he would be the one to go to. But of course, you can't ask Moshe Rabbeinu what he would say in such a circumstance. But actually, that's not true. There is an instance in the Torah that everybody misses 
that allows us a window into Moshe's response to such tragedy. What is this story? So I actually debated like sort of pulling this up on, on Safari and finding it. And I could do that. But, I, but I've learned over the years that people kind of, they just feel good the text is up there, but they don't usually read it. That's what I've heard from students. I'm going to trust that instinct. But if anybody wants to find this, um, you know, the, 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 the text we're going to really get into is in uh, the book of Vayikra. It was just recently we read this. Um, it's really the end of chapter nine and chapter 10, Perak Tet and Perak if you want to follow along. Before we get to that story of Moshe Rabbeinu, let's just talk about this for a minute. The first Jew who really struggles with this question on some level happened to have been the first Jew. And he does it in a most unexpected circumstance. Avram Avinu, right, is confronted with the fact that Hashem intends to destroy the cities of the Dead Sea. It wasn't yet a Dead Sea plain. Um, Stone, Gomorrah, there were actually five cities. And he starts to struggle with this. And he says to God, will the judge of the whole world not do justice? Like, what if there are righteous people there? How can you destroy the city of Zdom? Avram accepts that if you're, if you're destroying, you know, if you're bombing a room with Adolf Eichmann and Adolf Hitler, that makes sense. But if there's a three-year-old sitting there, how could you bomb the room? What if there are righteous people there? And he begins to bargain with God. That bargaining story is another topic for another time. But he is clearly struggling with this question. How do we deal with the fact that a righteous person could suffer? And by the way, it would seem that God agrees with him. Because Hashem says, if there are 50 righteous people, we'll save five cities. If there are 40, we'll save four. Right? Ultimately, if there are 10, we'll save Stum. And then it becomes clear that Stum isn't going to be saved because there aren't 10 righteous people. So that means that you wouldn't kill 10 righteous people. Lot who is somehow deemed the only righteous person, although he might not be so righteous and simply the result of being connected to Avram, is saved to some degree. But how do we deal with this? How do we, how do we understand what, what Hashem is thinking? So there actually, there is an interesting Talmudic statement. The Talmud in the tractate of Brachot, um, this is on the fifth folio, Dafei, Rava Rav Chizda, Rava says, if a person sees that he is suffering, right? He should leaf through his actions, literally like a book. Now, that's a very difficult statement. God forbid a person, I don't know, let's not take the extreme of a story like the D family. You trip and you break your leg and you end up in the hospital. And even though it doesn't sound as serious, breaking your leg is a big deal. It's a lot of pain, a lot of agony. You'll need physiotherapy. You're suffering. So this Talmudic statement, Rava, perhaps Rav Chizda is saying, you need to think about this. You're obviously doing something wrong. You got to go through your actions. Where are you sinning? Where are you messing up? That's a very difficult statement. Can you imagine going to a pediatric oncology ward and telling a set of parents, wow, like, look at your son. There's something seriously wrong with you guys. You got you to gotta fix it up. It's a horrible thing to say. How could you say that? Why would the Gemara say that? Well, the truth is, there's another Gemara. There's another Talmudic statement. This is in Moed Katan on the 28th folio. And this statement seems to directly contradict the former statement. Amar Rava, 
By the way, notice it's the same author. The first statement is from Rava and maybe Rachizda. The second statement is from Rava. It's the same Rava. And what does Rava say in this Gemara? Chaye bani umazoni, a person's um, life, the health of his children, his 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 sustenance, right? You know, parnasa, his his job, his livelihood. Lo bizchuta talia milta. If the thing is not dependent on merit, ella bemazla talia milta. It's all dependent on mazla. Don't think now. The implication of this gemara is: don't think that if somebody is sick, it's because he did something wrong. It's all mazel. We can't understand. So, which is it? Is the person in the pediatric oncology ward supposed to think that they're suffering because they did something wrong? Go through your actions, figure it out. Or are we supposed to accept that it's all mazel? And why would the same Rava seem to say two such contradictory statements? So it's interesting when you think about this, how do we rule? How does the Jewish people poskin? In fact, interestingly enough, you just proved how we poskin, right? Hashem blessed us with, uh, you know, this just, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child, right? If one of your ha- children, if your children are happy, you're flying. I mean, it's it's unbelievable to see the difference. You know, our daughter Baruch Hashem is 26. So she's not old, whatever, but she wanted to get married to see the difference. You know, she, she we were just talking the other day, she went on Shabbat and she was taking her fiance Baruch to this uh, Shul Nitzanim where she regularly goes. They live in Yushalayim, she lives in Yushalayim, right in the apartment. And uh, she goes to this kiddush and sometimes she goes, and sometimes it's like, you know, it's uncomfortable. You go, maybe you don't know anybody. You're kind of like, who will I talk to? She said it was the most amazing thing to go there. You don't have to talk to anybody. People were coming over to say a lot of stuff. And there was a point, a lull, where she didn't have anybody to talk to, but she was a barak. It didn't bother her at all. Totally in perspective, right? So what should you say to me? You should say, look at that. You must you must be excited. You must really be doing something right. Because three of your children are married. The first getting married, they're all happy. You must be a tzaddik. But that's not what you said. You said mazel tov. Don't think you've earned this. It's all mazel. <laughs> that's not such a nice thing to say. So which is it? Why do we do that? And, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So in order to understand this, let's ask Moshe Rabbein what he would say. Now the story here, and again, if we had hours, we would st- study this inside and but I'll give you the broad strokes. Um, we recently read this in the portion of the week in Parsha Shavuot at the end of Shemini. And, um, and it's actually repeated in this week's portion, after the death of holy ones. Uh, it's interesting that those parshiot almost always fall around Yom Zikaron. That's an interesting thought. Um, this is probably one of the greatest days in history. It's Rosh Chodesh Nisan. It's the new month of Nisan. It is the eighth day of the what's called the Shemoni Yemeim the the process of training the, the the soon to be Kohanim into how to function in the newly built tabernacle, right? The Mishkan. The Jewish people um, are flying back in Shavuot. They somehow have this incredibly intense experience. They experience Hashem in, in a way we can only imagine. They somehow see sound, they hear Hashem's voice, 
in fact, they're so overwhelmed by the ecstasy of this experience, they're afraid they can't handle it. There's such a thing as too much happiness. And six weeks later, at the foot of Sinai, they're frolicking with a golden calf. This is not the guy who kind of, you know, is stuck in an airport, has nothing to eat, and eats a chocolate bar that isn't kosher. This is the rabbi walking up to the ark with a cheeseburger on Yom Kippur. I mean, it's pretty bad. And Hashem basically says, like, I'm done with you. And Moshe pleads and begs, and he goes back up again. And some of you know the longer story. You know, after 40 days, he comes down. They have to he breaks the tablets. 3,000 Jews who are idolaters are done away with. The Jewish people have to struggle with this. Moshe says, now we have to get forgiveness. He goes back up for another 40 days, comes back on the new month of Elul. They're forgiven, but they're forgiven without a Torah. They don't have the... He's got to now make another set of luchot, another set of tab, go up again for 40 days, comes down on Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, the Jews receive the second tablets. They're forgiven. Okay, now what? The next day, at the beginning of the portion of Vayakel, if you look in Rashi, Rashi says, Yom Moshe gathers the Jewish people together and says, Hashem has given us a mitzvah. We're going to build a mishkan. Now, if you're a Jew and you're in the desert, and you have a time to think about this. After everything, everything Hashem did, you know, 10 plagues, took you out of Egypt, split the sea. You, experience, you don't doubt that God exists. You experience God. You know God exists. And you got to be wondering, how could we do this? How did this happen? And now Hashem gives you the opportunity to fix it. So they threw themselves into this task. And for the next half a year, they're building a mishkan. They're collecting the material. They're fashioning it. They're putting it together. And now it's finally put together. And seven days, Moshe helps the Aaron and his sons put it together, take it apart, put it together, take it apart. Now we're on the eighth day. Now, mind you, the Jewish people have not spoken to God, have not heard from God in this entire period of time. You know, um, I've never experienced this, but I heard sometimes some married couples fight. It could be. And sometimes you get into a debate and you just stop talking. I'm not talking to you. I don't know, I find that, again, I, theoretically, if it would happen to me, the most difficult thing. Like when you're yelling at each other, you're engaged. But if you just won't talk, that's very difficult. Now, sometimes it's healthy not to talk. You know, when I uh, got married, uh, when we were engaged, um, I managed to find an excuse to take my wife, to take my then fiance, to read to England. I really wanted her to meet my grandmother, who was an incredible human being. And she gave us one piece of advice. She was at the time 92 years old. Um, and she said, never go to sleep angry. And for many years, that was my grandmother's advice, and we stuck with that. It took me many years, I say this with trepidation, because she was a very wise woman, to realize that she actually was wrong. I don't think that's true. I think if, in, in order to not go to sleep angry, you have to make up when you're angry. And sometimes we would sit, you know, I wouldn't let her go to sleep. We'd stay up till two, three in the morning, you know, in those theoretically other couples, right? And now I've learned, you know, sometimes if you're upset with someone, walk away. Don't try to make up. Wait till you're not angry. Let it calm down. Come back to it when both of you are not angry. And then have a healthy discussion. It works so much better. So maybe the first day, Hashem is like, we're going to take a pause here. But this pause is a long pause. And this must be heartbreaking for them. And finally, the Mishkan is dedicated. Vayavo Moshe Aaron and Moshe and Aaron come into El Olmoy, they come into the tent. This is chapter 9, verse Chav Gimel, okay, uh, 23. Parak Ted Pasuk Chav Gimel, 9, 23. 
Moshe and Aaron come together as one, really, into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle in Mishkan. Vayetsu, they come out. What they do in there, by the way, is an interesting question. What are they doing there? They, they're praying. They bless the people. And the glory of Hashem appears to the entire Jewish people. They're back. She, 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 she says yes to the, to the I'm sorry. She, you're back. It's this incredible feeling. And they're so overjoyed that they've made up, that they've been forgiven, right? And a fire comes from Hashem and consumes, consumes all of the offerings. Now, what does it mean that the offerings are consumed if you're the Jewish people? Well, I guess it means that you're back, you're forgiven, you're accepted. They're filled with joy. And they experience rina, which is a very special form of joy. It's the joy that is beyond words. It's not like I'm happy I got into college. It's she said yes. It's standing under the chuppah knowing that this other person has decided that you're the person she wants to spend her life with. It's the birth of a child, the birth of a grandchild. It's, it's you know, I, I um, um, the, 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 was it last Monday morning? Um, so, my wife got a call from my daughter, you know, she's going into labor, woke me up. It was like 3.40 in the morning. We get to my, to our kid's house at four in the morning and I'm exhausted. And I, Dorita's already said, like, my aunt wants her to go. So she goes with her to the hospital and I'm going to stay and watch the kids. And I'm thinking, okay, I only slept like two and a half hours. I'll go back to sleep when I get there. Yeah, Ellie, our youngest granddaughter is wide awake. It's party time for you, Ellie, right? And I'm like, you know, initially to be perfectly honest, I'm like, oh, please go to sleep. She comes to me and goes, Sabi, she gives me this big hug. There's just no words for that. There's no words. And they fall on their faces. They're just so overwhelmed by the joy. In that moment, by the way, there will never be another moment like this in Jewish history. The first day that the Mishkan, the tabernacle is dead, there'll never be another Mishkan and they'll never be dedicated again. It's the first day you have Kohanim, because there's no Kohanim. If there's no priests, if there's no temple, it's the first day there's a Kohen Gadol. It's an unbelievable day. You know, it's, 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 it's JFK is resuscitated and he comes back to office two years later. He didn't die and he runs and he becomes president again, inauguration day. You, you couldn't get that high. And in this day, Aaron's sons, another one of you, they each take this strange fire. It's not clear exactly what that is, but that's not going to be our topic. Hashem doesn't command them. They get carried away, whatever it is. And a fire comes from before God. And it consumes them. And they die before God. And what's interesting, by the way, the rabbis are almost equally, that there are at least 14 different positions as to what their mistake was. And they're almost equally divided between the rabbis who think they did something terrible. I don't know, they were drunk. Uh, they taught in front of their Rebbe. Um, and those rabbis who believe they did something so high, they were so overjoyed that, that they wanted to do more than just the joy of the Jewish people. Of course, what the problem with that is an interesting question. And whenever you see the rabbis so equally divided, it means they're not really sure what happened. So we're not really sure what happened. But we're sure of one thing. Our own, and by the way, the fact that the verse is exactly the same, the verse for the consumption of the offerings on the altar, 
is the exact same Hebrew words as, and the fire came from before God and consumed David of you, lends credence to the fact that this was some sort of offering to God. We're sure of one thing. We're sure that Aaron just saw two of his sons die. And it wasn't just, you know, and this is drama. Drama is not when, um, drama is not when, you know, a person sitting in a dark room, he's all depressed and he finds out his aging mother died. Drama is they're honoring you at the dinner and they bring out the birthday cake and everybody's singing at birthday and then somebody whispers in your ear, God forbid that your son died. This is drama. It's so high and then it's, it's gone. So what do you do with that? What do you say to your brother who just lost two of his sons? And by the way, these two boys, they weren't just two boys. They were the future leadership of the Jewish people. If you look in Shemot, in chapter 24 in Perak of Dalad, when Moshe goes up on top of the mountain to receive the Torah, some of you will remember that Joshua also goes a certain way. He's below Moshe on the mountain. And at the foot of the mountain, right, the people are not allowed to be within 2,000 cubits. They stay away from the mountain. But the elders, this Canaan, the Sanhedrin, the high court, 70 righteous men, they're at the foot of the mountain. Who is in between Moshe and Yeshua on top? And the elders down below, Nadav and Aviv, which means they were the future leadership of the Jewish people, and they're gone. So look at this. Vayomer Moshe el Aaron. So Moshe says to Aaron. Now this is amazing. I can't tell you how many times I have sat at a shiva in difficult circumstances, searching for the right words to say to someone in pain. It's a very hard thing. So now I'm going to find out how would Moshe Rabbeinu handle this? What do you say? Listen to what Moshe says. This is unbelievable. Vayomer Moshe el Aaron. Moshe says to Aaron. Who are shared Diber Hashem? That's what God was talking about. When he says, I will be sanctified, right? Then it'll do honor amongst the people, right? In other words, okay, they died, they messed up, but you know what? The people are going to learn a lesson. This is good. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? I have a, a, a good friend whose son was killed as an officer in Golani, and the circumstances are not so simple. You know, nobody would ever go to him and say, you know what? They learned safety precautions at this event. I had a friend in yeshiva. His name was Arla Friedman. He was an incredible human being and just a leader. Like he, he was very handsome. I mean, I, I, I once saw him walking up to a bus stop and a bunch of girls there. And I just, I just smiled watching all these girls turn their heads as he walked by. And he was in, he was in tank commander's course. I was not in the army yet. I was still in Shiva. Um, his younger brother, uh, uh, Yair, actually played. He, was, he plays a, an instrument. He played at my wedding. He was in the band at my wedding. And Arla Friedman, they were working on a tank in Tank Commander's course. And he was standing behind the tank in between the bitonada, which is this big cement block that's designed to take the impact of a tank so that if it goes backwards by accident, you're not supposed to stand there. The tank. Uh, driver turned on the tank after they'd switched an engine. Somebody hadn't screwed in. There's a screw in the tank that determines how many RPMs, how many revolutions per minute the tank um, uh, engine is 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 doing when it's turned on. Like in a normal tank, it's supposed to be, you know, 750 uh, RPMs. But somehow he hadn't screwed this this little screw that that determines this. So it turned on at 1600 RPMs. And when he put it in reverse, right, it, it, it shot backwards. And he was obviously instantly killed. 
Nobody went to the shiva and said, you know, your son messed up. You should don't say that. It's, it's not part. It, it, who we? What do we know? How could Moshe say this? And you know what Aaron's response to this is? Vayidom Aaron. And Aaron is silent. This is a silence of magnitude. Now, if this is where the story ends, I would be devastated. Like, how could, how could you look up? But this is not where the story ends. There's one last piece of the story, and unlocking the last piece of the story will help us explain the contradiction of these two Talmudic statements and perhaps arrive at a deeper understanding of how we deal with these questions. At the end of this story, it says, this is now in, uh, right, the, the rest of the chapter continues with all sorts of laws that relate to mourning, not really for us right now. And at the end, right, but the, but, but the bottom line is that the Kohanim, who are called in the Torah the remaining sons of Aaron, they will, Elazar and Itamar, the remaining two sons of Aaron, will always be the remaining sons. Life has changed. And Moshe says, look, this is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. And even though normally a Kohen who's in mourning doesn't do the service, but this is the dedication of the Mishkan. And the Jewish people, Am Yisrael, comes before any individual pain, Reb Yisrael. That's part of the reason, by the way, that the festival breaks our shiva, breaks our mourning. Because the festival is us being part of the Jewish people enjoy, and that takes precedence over our personal pain, as difficult as that may be. There's a powerful message there. So you have to do everything you're supposed to do. Okay. And part of that is offering up the offerings, and part of that is eating from the offerings that you're supposed to offer, which you're only allowed to do if you're in a state of joy. Which means these individuals had to rise, not just to do these things, but to do it in a state of joy, that's a very hard thing to do. I have a, a vivid memory of Amika Mamiur. Amika Mamiur was a boy who grew up in Efrat, and he was killed by sniper fire in the middle of a heroic act, trying to save a fellow soldier who was hit by a sniper on a water tower. It's a longer discussion back in the tunnel riots in 96. Um, and he was killed trying to save this boy's life. And the two of them ended up dying, brothers in arms forever, and they were buried on the eve of the festival of Sukkot. I think it was 1996. And the entire city of Ephrat, I mean, you know, the eve of a festival in Israel is like, you know, it's like a holiday. Nobody's at work. So the whole city turned out. There must have been 6,000 people at the funeral. And after the, the eulogies, which were conducted out there, we had no indoor space big enough, um, they went to the cemetery and the entire community, there were thousands of people. And by the time the hesped, the, the eulogies and the funeral and everything was over, we came back to Efrat. You know, we had like an hour and a half until the festival. So the Amiur family went home. They sat shiva for like 40 minutes. Then they got up, they dressed for the festival, and they went to shul. And they came home after synagogue, and they sat down in their sukkah, and they had to make kiddush. And they had to make the blessing, praise God, who sustained us and allowed us to live in this, to this moment. That's unbelievable. How do you do that? And Ravriskin gave understanding how, how the entire community was in a state of struggle. Ravriskin gave a shir that Shabbat morning. I remember it to this day. This is what, uh, almost 30 years ago. And he quoted Rav Soloveitchik who said, there is Reb Yisrael and there's Am Yisrael. The individual Jew will always be challenged to rise to the occasion and be a part of the joy of the Jewish people, no matter how difficult. Okay. So at the end of this story of the dedication day, they've lost Nadav and Avil, there's a, a, an offering. And it's called a chatat, a sin offering. And a chatat really, chait doesn't really mean sin, it really means a mistake. Okay. 
and there's a sacrifice they're supposed to offer. And and Moshe taught them that chatat the Rosh Darash Moshe. Moshe taught them what to do and how you do it. But it's been whole burnt. Now you're not supposed to burn everything in a chatat. The Kohanim are supposed to eat the main part of the meat. And interestingly enough, the Talmud tells us that it's only when the Kohanim partake of this meat, right, and eat of it along with the, the owners, that the forgiveness is achieved. And that's a very deep idea. That we don't gain forgiveness from Hashem by desisting from the world, but by re-engaging with the world and eating of what life has to partake. Okay. But in this instance, right, they burnt it all. They didn't eat for him. And Moshe gets angry with Elazar and Itamar, the sons of Aaron, the remaining sons of Aaron. And he says, Why didn't you eat this? This is all you're supposed to eat. I told you. Right? And for this, you were given the responsibility to carry the iniquity of the congregation. Right? Why did you do this? So finally, Aaron speaks. This is powerful. So Aaron finally speaks and responds to Moshe, who's just yelled basically at his sons. They today have offered up their sacrifices before God. Such as this has occurred to me. I just lost two sons. On this day, the dedication. We should we should not eat. We should have a party. Would this be good in God's eyes? In other words, he challenges Moshe, who's saying they should be eating from it. He says, really, today we're mourners, we should eat from it. And Moshe hears this. And this is good in his eyes. And that's the end of the story. Huh? Moshe says, this is what you should do. Aaron says, yeah, but we're mourning. Moshe says, oh, good point. Okay. So all the rabbis ask, what's going on with Moshe? Aaron is basically saying, if you're a mourner, you shouldn't eat from the sacrifice. And Moshe says, oh, you're right. Also, why did Moshe say that to begin with? So it's a longer discussion, but the short version is, first of all, there's a beautiful idea here. Moshe forgot the halacha, or Moshe didn't know the halacha, or didn't strike. So the rabbis say, well, how could that happen? Says, well, because Moshe got angry. You can't teach when you're angry. You can't communicate with your angry. Now, by the way, this is a problematic idea because, and I've never received a good answer to this question. If anybody comes up with a good answer, let me know. The implication of those commentaries that say this is that Moshe got angry, so he forgot the halacha. But the reason Moshe got angry was because he forgot the halacha. He wouldn't have been angry if he hadn't forgotten the halacha. So you can't say he got angry because he forgot the halacha and then say because he was angry, he forgot the halacha. That doesn't make sense. And I get to find the question, but nonetheless, great Torah scholars, there must be an answer because great Torah scholars say this. I do think it's a beautiful idea that the Torah is not afraid to share with me that Moshe is human. He makes a mistake. You know, there's a, a, a biography that's written about the Chafetz Chaim. Chafetz Chaim is one of the great, great rabbis of the last generation. And I've read a few biographies of him. And some of them are like whitewashed. But I found there's, an, there's a biography that's written by one of his sons. I think his last name is Pupko. And, um, or Kagan, maybe. And it's it's a powerful piece because it, it you can read that there are actually certain things that he was bothered by about his father. His father was a human being. You you know I won't say what they are, but he, he had certain flaws. And I remember reading that and 
thinking, now this biography, when you realize that this son is talking about his father and share with you who he really was, then when you see the other things he says about he says about him, it blows your mind. But if you read the art scroll version of the Chafetz Chaim, that's not in there. I've seen this happen with another number of books. Torah tells us you can learn as much from our leaders' mistakes as you can from their from from their from their merits. Right? We are blessed with many leaders who make lots of mistakes. Thank God. No, we don't have that's an abundance, right? But back to our point to finish it off. What is going on here? So listen to this. This is an unbelievable idea. Baruch Sturman, who's a good friend of mine, many years ago wrote an article on this topic. And um, on this question, he quotes Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Soloveitchik says a fascinating thing. He says, you know, there are two partners to suffering. There is the sufferer, right? There is the person who's in pain. And then there is the witness to suffering. There is the D family. No matter what we will say or how much we try, thank God we cannot comprehend what it must be like for a person to wake up in the morning with a family of seven and go to sleep at night or three nights later with a family of four, beyond our comprehension. My wife and I have talked about this, you know, God forbid a person loses a child, it's your spouse that helps you get through it. He lost his spouse. Who's supposed to help them get through their mother? Just beyond comprehension, right? There is the person who suffers, but then there are the witnesses to suffering. Now, when you suffer, when I suffer, my natural inclination, unless I work on it, is it's all muscle. Who, me? I did something. No, it must be muscle. I'm not doing anything wrong. When you see someone else suffering, very often you want to pin it on something. You want to say, oh, he got lung cancer. You know what? He's a smoker. That's why he got lung cancer. Now, if you do that, it makes your life simple. You've just put his suffering into a nice little box. And as long as you are outside that box, you're good. You don't have to worry about it. Says of Soloveitchik, you got to do the opposite. When someone else is in pain, it is not our job to figure out why they're suffering. Our job is simply to be there for them in their pain. But when we suffer, then actually there's a value to struggling to find meaning. This is a dangerous process. It doesn't mean you're going to get it right. I get nervous when someone says, I figured out why this happened to me. But the process of struggling with the question and seeing whether there's some something you can learn from this is valuable. I'll give you a, a mild example. I don't know how you do this with such big pictures, but you can. we can practice with the little things. I, I haven't biked in a while between travel and the winter weather here. I make it a habit not to bike in the rain. I think it's dangerous. Finally, the weather started to turn. Spring is here. I can get off the treadmill and start biking. So, of course, you take your bike out of storage and the air is a little low. So I went to the gas station on my way in. You know, I put the bike up on the car and, and just to fill up the air. As I'm filling up the air in the tire and realizing something's wrong, the attendant comes over to me yelling. He says, no, 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 it doesn't work. I said, what do you mean it doesn't work? He said, there's something wrong with this, with this air pump. It takes air out of the tire. I look at my tire. It's totally out of air. Now, I'm on Derech Avrad. I have to get to work. I'm in my biking clothes. And I want to bike to work, and I can't. So I got to go find another gas station. I'll spare you the end of the story. And it happened there too. And some Arab fellow came along and helped me figure out how to deal with it. He was such a malach, right? And I was so then finally I got the air pumped, and now I'm late to work, but I'm biking to work. And I'm thinking about this. Don't you think that's bizarre that you go to an air pump and it pumps air out of your tire? Is that random? Is that just coincidence? Or is there something going on? 
Is there some message we're supposed to glean from this? Now, again, it's arrogant to think like, okay, God has done this to me because of this. But not to think about it misses an opportunity. And that's how I understand. That's how I think when Soloveitchik understands these two contradictory Gemaras. That's what Moshe is saying to Aaron. Moshe is saying to Aaron, this is mazel. You don't, this is not you. It's mazel. And Moshe is right to say that. I just want to be here for you. But at the end of the story, Aaron says to Moshe, wait a second. Why is the Jewish people offering up a carbon chatat today? What is it that we made a mistake? What do we have to gain forgiveness for? The sin of the golden calf. Well, who was the catalyst for the sin of the golden calf? I was the one who told them to throw their gold into the fire. You think this happened to me today and it's a coincidence? No, no, no. I need to think about this. There is a halacha that if a Kohen is offering up a sacrifice for a particular iniquity and he himself is guilty of that iniquity, he's not supposed to eat from the carbon. And perhaps the reason that Moshe has a different perspective is it's his, not his job to do that which Aaron is doing. But Aaron, Aaron is the one who needs to do it. And good for him for doing it. Hard thing to do. And, 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 and I think maybe that's the place we're in, in between Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaShoah. I will stand, Mirza Hashem, at Dani Majitz's kever, next to Dani Majitz, who was just an unbelievable human being, is the kever of a boy named Chaim Avner. This is one of those strange relationships that you could only develop in Israel. Every year I go to this grave, and every year I'm there a few times a year, and I go to on the anniversary when he was killed and so on and so forth. But obviously on Yom Tzikor on Memorial Day. And there's a family that is in the grave next to Donnie's grave. And one year, I happened to notice after a couple of years, this older woman, and she's, they gave her a chair. She's sitting, and it's a hot day, you know, in April, and she's got numbers on her arm. And she's sitting next to this grave of what turns out to be her son. And that just blew my mind. So I got into this really deep conversation with her. And the most amazing thing about her was she was smiling. She's just always smiling. She passed away about a year and a half ago. She's always smiling, amazing woman. And, and, and learned her whole story. My job is not to figure out why. How could you possibly even think about why that? But her job, her job was to think about what does this mean? And by the way, on our own level, why did I meet this woman? And what am I meant to learn from this? And so on and so forth. That, 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 that sympathy, that tension between those two questions is, is, I don't know, it's the miracle of Yom HaShoah leading into Yom HaZikaron, you know? And I uh, just wanted to share a little bit of food for thought, um, you know, as we go into these and continue going into these intense days, modern day Jewish holidays. Um, I'm going to open the floor if anybody has any questions, uh, but for those of you who end up uh, needing to beg off, I just want to wish you the most meaningful Yom HaZikaron and uh, an awesome, awesome Yom Atzmaut. For those of you that are in America or overseas, uh, these are two very challenging days. Don't let them pass you by. You know, don't let them pass you by. Find some way to connect to the loss of Yom Zikaron and what we've all, all of us, given up so that we can have a state and find some way to experience celebration, like real celebration on Yom Atzmaut. Food for thought. Any questions from anybody? Does anybody have any questions? You can put them in the
If anybody has any questions, raise your hand. If not, I really, really appreciate your coming on. Really enjoyed this. I look forward to staying in touch with all of you. Uh, we'll do this again soon. And uh, really wishing you all a, a meaningful chag. A meaningful chag. Take care, everybody. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Love to the family. Uh, love to you guys. Really cool. Yeah. Let's see who the last man standing is. <laughs> say, say hi to you, John. Oh, I will definitely do that. I will definitely. Do that. I think you had a good Pesach. Uh, yeah. We had a very busy day yesterday as well, apparently. So it was great. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, no problem. I will send her love. No problem. Please do. <laughs> Good to see you guys. How are you doing? It's been a tough uh, month for you, Susan. Yeah, yeah. But we're doing good. We're doing good. Thank you. I, I, the talk was definitely like, it's uh, deep. Yeah, lot to think about. And, and you're right. You know, sometimes there are no words to say when something happens. Maybe it's just better to be quiet. Well, that's why. Also, you know, you can hug people with what you say. Yes. And you can hug people with what you don't say. That's true. Yeah. I think I read something. I don't know if it was a rabbi or somebody. Uh, somebody had passed. And when the, when the rabbi came to greet that person, he just hugged the person and, and cried. And that was like the best comfort that that person received. I don't remember where I read it, but I think that made this a lot. This friend of mine, Shimon Galavensis whose son was killed in Hebron as an officer in Golani. I was, I learned with him every Friday because he was just broken. And I once asked him, like, when you were sitting Shiva, what were the things that really spoke to you? He said, honestly, the, the, the comment that made the, meant the most to me was the people who came and said, I have no words. I just have no words. And they just came and they sat. And I, I don't know, I can't even begin to fathom what's going through the D family's minds. But I know that at the Shiva, I mean, thousands of people came to the Shiva and Efrat. You couldn't drive your car down there. It was like packed. Mm-hmm. And most of the people did not know them. They were people like me who came, you know, sat, were there for a bit, stood up. We, you couldn't, my wife told me when she went, she couldn't even get close enough to say Hamaka Menachem. You know, she, and she didn't want to interrupt because there were so many people. But I imagine perhaps it was a comfort for them that so many people came. You know, you can comfort people in lots of different ways. I think that that the fact that so many people were cared about, you know, were, I don't even know the right word, but maybe I heard that story about the rabbi who hugged the person and was crying. I might heard it from you. I don't know, but it, it definitely stuck with me. Rabbi, I think also about the other families, the, the, the two brothers, the two sets of brothers. Right. How do, how do the families process, you know, the huge outpouring of love and support from the entire country, even worldwide, the D family, and not that the other incidents were unnoticed, they were not, certainly every incident is a tragedy, but you know, just- Look, so, one of, so close. I remember mind. once talking to my cousin Judith, whose son Benji was killed in Lebanon, and she said an interesting thing. She said, you know, there's an envelope that surrounds you in this country. And, and although it, it's there, there comes a day when the penny drops. Like, 
everybody goes back to work. People are not calling you every day, nor should they. And you kind of have to sort of, it hits you. This is the new, the new normal. Like we don't need the big table anymore. You know, I know somebody who um, lost a son and all of a sudden they didn't need a six seater car. And about a month and a half after the Shiva, she suddenly realized this in her car and she totally broke down sitting on the steering wheel. You know, like it's, it's, it's just so much bigger. Somebody comes over to you and says, how many children do you have? How do you answer that question? It's just, uh, yeah. you know, the challenge with these things is to be there for them when the dust settles, you know, when it's a little longer. Yeah. And that isn't 4,000 people. That's three, four or five people who are really there for them. Right. Anyway. Shem should bless us. You know, despite it all, I'll finish with one last little. Um, some of you remember the, the disengagement, the heat not good, right? In, that, in the summer of 2005, very, very difficult summer. You know, 20,000 soldiers kind of in Gush Katif, evacuating 8,000 Jews. Everybody's in pain. And, you know, people pull from their homes, people crying and screaming. And of course, now you look back at it and you just don't get it. Like, uh, there might have been one or two yeshivim in the middle of Gush Katif. At least I could understand it. But a lot of them, there was just no reason. I mean, nothing good came out of this. And um, and I think, like, you know, you may remember that they pushed the, the government, the Eurohomer government, to push off the Eitna Kodah Deir to so it wouldn't happen on Tisha B'Av. So a couple of days later, they did it. And now it's like a few days later. And I had a Daf Yomi shir, like a, 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 you know, regular page of Talmud shir that I give. And I showed up to show, it was like eight o'clock in the morning, you know, after davening to give the shear. And like I always do, I sat there and I said, Bokel Tov, good morning. And one of the guys looks at me and goes, what's good about it? And I had this moment of guilt, like, you know, you're right, here I am. It's two days after the end, and I'm already trying to get back to normal. Like I should have started and say this is a tough day and whatever. So I felt really bad. There was a fellow sitting right next to me, in between me and this guy, a man named Mr. Zimmerman, who was a Holocaust survivor, an incredible human being. He looks at this guy, he looks at me, turns back to the guy, he says, what are you talking about? He says, I'm not, we're in the state of Israel. There are no soldiers coming through the door. We're going to sit and learn Torah. We don't have to worry about anything. We're going to go home from here and we're going to have a healthy breakfast. Our children are safe. We're speaking Hebrew and we're in a state of Israel after 2,000 years of dreaming. It's a very good morning. Go ahead. Uh, like this guy, like, you can sit down now. Right. It was such a powerful moment for me, like, it's true, and, and we have to struggle with this, and it's painful to go to Herzl, but we're on a Herzl. We're on a military cemetery for a Jewish army. We're not in Kishinev in 1903. It's a balance. It's a balance. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg off. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on board. Thanks for staying. You know, Jeff, you're, 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 you're in the middle of your day. We're at the end of ours. You're at the start of your day. Yeah, can I ask you one question though about sure. all of it? Um, did it, like take the D's family or the or the or the or the or the uh, brothers who were killed. I mean, how do you get past the anger of the fact that it was not a news item here in the in the United States? I mean, if one one Arab dies, it's a huge deal. This family is 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 just devastated. It's as if Jewish blood has no value. I mean, it just, Robin, it just leaves me so angry. And I, I mean, I'm, I struggle with that. Listen, I want to tell you something. Many years ago, 
during the, I wrote this um, letter, I think it was the New York Times. I was just very upset about one of the articles and I wrote this long letter and back, whatever. And the whole process was so upsetting. I was angry writing the letter. I was angry when I got the response and I was left with all this anger. And I thought about this afterwards and I started to notice that all the people who do this, they're constantly speaking out against, you know, the two-state solution or the one-state solution. And, you know, is there such a thing as the Palestinian and writing letters to the New York Times, the New Republic and everything else. They're just angry. And I thought about it. You got to engage in the things in life that you feel can make a difference. Anger comes from expectation that civilized human beings should behave in a civil manner. Um, but that's not true. There are lots of people that, for whatever the reasons, whether it's because they're uneducated or they're being fed fake news or they're just wicked, they're not in that space. And you can expect that they're not going to do that. And anger has nothing to do with them. Like, the decision not to be angry is an absolute refusal to live in a state of ill will. Now, there are two ways to get rid of anger. One way is to dig into the pit and dig it out. That's very hard work. Why is it making me angry? Where does this come from? You know, what subconsciously is it triggering and all those kinds of things. The other is, you know what? Don't get a shovel and dig out the muck. Just fill, fill the hole with water. Just fill yourself up with good so you don't have time to be angry. I don't get angry with all the anti-Semites in the world. First of all, although this is a dangerous thing to say, Hashem has basically told us the Jewish people will survive, number one. Number two, he's told us we're going to end up in Israel. And we can get to Israel the easy way, or we can get to Israel the hard way, but we're all going to end up in Israel. There's no guarantee that every individual is going to be on that wagon. But the Jewish people will get to Israel, and we're witnessing that in our day, right? Okay. So now, if that's the case, maybe we figure it out, and, you know, we, we sing Hallel, and we stand up for our soldiers, and then eventually, if we can't make Aliyah for all sorts of practical reasons, we help others do that, and so on and so forth. But if we don't, if the Jewish community just thinks that home is America, then it seems to me that in history, at least, Hashem has said, okay, I'm going to send you a reminder. All this anti-Semitism is not, is not random. It, it's not logical either. You know, when you look at it as logical, you think if I solve this problem, if I chain leadership on campus, this is part of a recipe that Hashem has that says, I'm going to remind you that that place is known. It's just exactly what we're talking about. We're going through difficult times. There's a message there. You know, we talked about the messages that we get individually. There are also messages nationally as Jewish people. We're being told that the Western exile is not home. You don't belong in France. Now, I don't judge individuals. And I'm blessed that, you know, I came here young. And I can't take credit for that. I grew up in a certain home. And it was just lots of different activities that were muscle. I don't pat myself on the back. So it's easy for me to talk. Right? And my parents came here and my in-laws came here. I really, I'm blessed. But, so I don't judge a person who stays there. And to be honest, if all my kids were living in America, I might be living in America. But when you look at the global picture, you take a step back and say the Jewish people after 2,000 years are one step away from building a temple. We have a state of Israel or home. Why are we all in America? That's a legitimate question. So Hashem says, okay, because you, you think America is home. I'm going to remind you, it's not home. Now, whether we're smart enough to figure out that message early when it's easier, well, that's on us. You know, and again, you got to be careful. This is not, this is not judgmental. I, I, I don't know what I would do if I grew up like you or like you or like you, or if I had the challenges or if my kids were living in Hawaii. Like, 
I, I don't know that I would lead. Like I, you know, you're, I mean, Jeff, you're a good example. You're the Jewish link for these kids. If you're in Israel, where are they going to get that? So I don't judge an individual as there, but when I look at the whole Jewish community being there, something's wrong. Like one day Hashem is going to come to say, why did you come home? That's a challenge, you know? So that's how I look at it. Don't get angry at the anti-Semites. Expect it of them. They're anti-Semites. You know, you could spend all your time trying to get the UN rapporteur to resign because he's an anti-Semite. Or you could say, okay, Hashem put an anti-Semite there for a reason. We have to figure out what it is. Does that make sense? Longer discussion. I'll call you. It's a longer discussion worth following up on. But Thank for you. now, I wish you all well. And I wish all of your spouses and family well. And you should have a meaningful Chagat's month. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening. And it's great to see everybody. Thank you. All right. Awesome.